0: Today on the Heartland Community Church Podcast, online campus pastor Trevor McDonald brings part three of the series titled, Desert Sessions. This message is titled, What Are You Waiting For? I'm excited because this is week three, Desert Sessions, and truthfully, uh, I'm going to speak out of this story in John chapter five, I'm gonna get to it in a minute. Um, any, anybody first time, this is your first time at Heartland? Or maybe like you haven't been in a long time. Any courage people? Come on, look at that, let's clap for him. Thank you for coming. We're so glad you're here. Um, we've been in this, this uh, series, it's hard to say, Desert Sessions Series, and this idea of the desert and how long deserts kind of last. In our own life, they last kind of a while, right? Uh, but we've been looking into like the life of Moses and what took place with him when it came to in uh, the book of Exodus. It was 40 years in the desert. We see Jesus' own desert season was 40 days. So there's a significance when it comes around this idea of 40, right? Now I'm going to talk about this story, John chapter five. It's one of the most impactful stories that uh, I think of when it comes to this idea of just kind of waiting for a very long time for something. There's a man. He's sitting at this pool called Bethesda. Now, he's been there for 38 years, nearly four decades. He's been sitting at this pool hoping and wishing for a healing. He's a paralyzed man. He is lame. He cannot walk. And then we see what happens next. Jesus enters the scene, and the rest is history. Let me, let me pick up John 5, verse 1. It's going to be on the screens as well, so you guys can follow along with me. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for how long? 38 years. Now, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Now, quick pause. I used to look at this story, and I used to think to myself, Jesus, that's a really silly question. Like, hey, you've been sick. I know about your illness. 38 years. That's a bummer. You want to get well? Like, I almost feel like, Jesus, it's really kind of, like, is this a sarcastic thing? Like, of course I want to get well. Like, do I? you think I want to lay out here all day, every day? Of course I want to be able to get well. But then at the same time, if I begin to kind of look in the story, I think to myself, perhaps Jesus is asking this question like, hey, no, for real. You've been sitting here for 38 years. Do you really want to get well? And I think in our own life, like Jesus kind of enters into our space and our world and he asks the same question. He's like, no, for real, I I really want to know, do you actually want to get well or, or are you okay with being in your sickness? Do you really want to walk into the purpose and destiny that God has for you? So Jesus is saying, "Hey, do you want to get well?" Let's continue. Sir, the invalid replied, "I have no one to help me into the pool, and when the water is stirred while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me." Then Jesus said to him, "Get up!" Exclamation point! Jesus is crazy right now. He just he doesn't say, "Come, thy child, and walk." He's like, get up! Like, sometimes in our life, like we gotta be okay with Jesus Be like, yeah, 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 that's great, that's great. Get up, walk, do something, right? So he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. So look, after 38 years, sometimes we can't like compute this in our brain because it's like, oh yeah, I read that. That's a great story in the Bible, and then I flipped the page to chapter six. No, guys. 38 years, laying at a pool, hoping to get healed. And Jesus comes and says, get up, take your mat, and walk. And instantly, he was healed. Now, I have to give some context to the story for us to understand kind of where we're going with this week three desert sessions series. Um, This pool where Jesus visited was called the Pool of Bethesda. Now, the reason why this man is sitting there for 38 years and the reason why he said, when the water is stirred, I have no one to put me in. The reason is because they actually believed all those hundreds of lame and sick people believed that this Greek mythological God named Asclepius would actually come down, stir the water, and they believed the first one in the pool would be healed. This is what they've been believing. This is what they've been doing. And then, even fast forward even further, The pool of Bethesda was actually excavated in 1964. Actually, they began to find where it was, and it was right next to an Asclepian temple, which is basically a temple for healing. See, Asclepius was the Greek mythological god of medicine and of healing. So this man has been sitting there by the pool, hoping to be healed by someone who actually couldn't fulfill the healing that he really needed. Following along. So Jesus comes into the scene And he says, hey, all the stuff you've been hoping for, the things that you've been waiting on, I can fulfill those things. I'm the hope that you need. I'm the healing that you need. I'm the miracle that you've been waiting for 38 years. When it comes to our desert sessions in our lives, oftentimes I've found in my own life that I put my hope in so many other things. I'm waiting in a sense by the pool for something to bring healing or to bring hope until Jesus enters the scene. It's like, I'm the only one that can actually bring that healing and that hope, amen? Amen. So, so here's, the, here's the title of my message. I'm a big title guy. You can write it down, write it on your leg, write it on your neighbor's arm, whatever you want to do. Um, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Let me pray for us real quick. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can gather in a space like this, that God, we can worship together and commune together and hang with each other, even though, God, it's, it's an interesting season of our lives, but, God, we just believe that even in this moment, even in, in this midst, God, your presence is here. God, we believe your freedom is here, and I pray that, God, we would be reminded today that there's hope in our desert seasons, that, Jesus, you are the one that brings healing and brings the miracle, and, God, you're the ones that, God, we, we want to begin to rely on with all of our life. We love you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Hey, so a few years ago, uh, my wife and I, we had a, um, it was a 2000, I'm just going to throw it out there, it was a 2003 Acura MDX. Now it was a used Acura, it probably had like 90 something thousand miles, and we drove it for a little over two years, and I remember where I was in like this office where I was working at the time, and we're talking, I don't know how these conversations come up, but let's just go with it. So we're talking about like the cars that our parents drove, and then we're talking about like how many cars we had growing up, like when we turned 16, what car was it? And all these different things, we're all talking about our cars. And then one of these girls who is like, you know, the smartest person on the planet, you you won't know that because you'll never meet her, but just trust me that she really is, her name is Fallon. And Fallon is like, well, my parents used to have an Acura. I was like, oh, I have an Acura. She's like, yeah, and I remember like gas for some odd reason was like really expensive. And I was like, why? It's like, well, because Acuras, they prefer and some even require premium gasoline. I don't know if you know this, if this is the only thing that helps you out today, I hope it's good. And I was like, well, well, hold on a second. Do all Acras require premium gas? She's like, yeah, I think think they do. Now, because she's one of the smartest people, I just, you know, I'm saying, well, well, if you said so, it must be true. But then I Google it, which is great, because Google, if you've noticed, you can type anything you want in Google, and something's gonna come up. You know what I'm saying? Any, like, you, you Google everything, like, you just Google, if, you, if your toe hurts, you will Google, stub my toe, hurts still, three weeks later, do I need to get it removed? And then, like, you hit search, and something comes up, it's like, yeah, you gotta get it chopped off, that's it. And then you're like, whoa, oh no, Google told me. So this is what I did, I remember Googling, like, 2003, Acrum DX, premium gasoline, is it okay if I drive it on regular gasoline, search. And then all this stuff comes up, and it basically says, it is, It is very much preferred, especially if you have an older model to drive with premium gasoline. And now I'm like really concerned and worried because all these years I've been filling up our tank with just regular gas, not even knowing that I could be damaging the engine. And I think in the same way in our life, we can be filling ourselves up with something intentionally or unintentionally that we don't even know is actually damaging the inside of us it's actually damaging our soul, it's damaging our mind, it's damaging the purpose that God has for us because we just keep filling up, we keep filling up, we keep filling up, and God's like, hey, there's a whole other way to do it, and here's what we see here in John chapter five. We see a man sitting at the pool of Bethesda beginning to fill him up with so many things, believing that Asclepius, this, this Greek mythological god of healing is gonna come down as he's gonna bring healing to me. But for 38 years, what? It hasn't really worked, has it? until Jesus comes on the scene. Now, for 38 years, this man, he believed, he had a picture of what his life should and could be if Asclepius comes down, if he begins to get in the pool first, if someone helps him in. He had an idea of it. And it makes me think of like, anybody do puzzles, anybody love doing puzzles? Like, you, you can raise your hand, you know what I'm saying? Like, we can talk in church. Okay, so, so when you get a puzzle, whether it's like, you know, 500 pieces or 15,000 pieces. Which those people are crazy. Those people are nuts. I love you for, for, for actually being able to put together that many pieces. You have the cover on the box, right? That you need the cover because when you open it, it doesn't look like the cover. It's just a bunch of these tiny little pieces you dump, and then you got to flip them all. It's a lot of work just to flip all the pieces. And then you got to like do the border. Then you got to like match, the, you know, the, the colors and the rainbow or the kittens or whatever you guys like. Or if it's puppies, I don't know what the puzzle is. Whatever. But you lose the top of the box, it's over. Like now it's just, you're a genius if you don't have the top of the box, which you, you people are amazing. You guys can do cubes like in 30 seconds. You guys are awesome. But, it, but again, this man, it's almost as if like he had an image, he had a picture, and yet his life kind of looked like a, just a bunch of pieces. The, the other day, my wife and I and our two boys were putting together a puzzle. And uh, well, rewind. My wife and I were putting together a puzzle and the boys got, you know, distracted two pieces in, and uh, rewind, my wife was doing a puzzle, because I'm not, she's like a puzzle gene, she has the border done, and I have three pieces connected, and I feel really good, and I'm like, did you see, oh, oh, you're already done, you're awesome, and uh, we're doing this like Pac-Man arcade puzzles, it's a really, really cool puzzle, we've done it before, several times, the boys love it, uh, and, and as we did it, at the end, Amy finished it, and there's like seven pieces missing. And she's just looking at it. She's like, oh, well, it's not complete. I don't know if you've ever like done a puzzle or it's kind of like, well, this isn't good. One, piece, one missing piece feels like, what a waste of my time. I'm missing the eyeball of this thing. Yeah, like Legos. Talk to me, right? And I think in the same way, like with our life, it's like I had an idea of what my life was supposed to be like. I I put all the pieces together, and yet there's something missing. And there's something about us in our human nature that says it is incomplete. This is not the way it was supposed to be. And I'm telling you today, in desert seasons in our lives, this is where it gets amplified even more. Because we're in the desert, we're hoping on God, we're wishing that he would do something in our lives, we're hoping that something takes place, and we're like, man, it just seems like it's incomplete. It's incomplete. I have an idea of what I wanted, I have an idea of what I saw my life being, and yet, I still find myself sitting at the pool, hoping, wishing, wanting, and it doesn't seem like it's very complete. In desert seasons, it's all the harder, right? In desert seasons, we begin to, if you're like me, you begin to actually convince yourself of things that aren't even true. You begin to have this self-talk and you begin to tell yourself some lies about who you are and what this means and maybe I miss God or maybe I miss this thing or maybe I have no hope at all. Maybe this is just the end of my life anyways. Who cares? Maybe this is just the incomplete life I'm going to be living forever. These are things that we begin to convince ourselves in desert seasons. You could almost go even further that it matters who you surround yourself with in desert seasons. This is what's crazy about John chapter five. Let me read this, verse three. It says this, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. The message, the message translation says there were hundreds of people at this pool, waiting, hoping. And I thought to myself, this man's been sitting there and lying there for 38 years around other people sick and lame and paralyzed people? Could we actually make the argument that it really matters in our life who we surround ourselves with? Because again, remember, I've been sitting here at the pool for 38 years and all I see are sick and lame and paralyzed people. So even in our own lives, we have to begin to reflect like, who do I allow into my life? Who do I allow to speak into my life? This is why it's so vital of what you begin to fill yourself up with. Is it helping or is it hurting? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, that bad company corrupts good character. So we have to take kind of this inventory and be like, man, when I'm in my desert season, especially in the desert season, who is in my life? Who am I allowing to speak into my world? Who am I actually having conversation with? when it comes to the things that I'm experiencing, the things that I'm feeling like I'm going through. Cause it can be real easy to begin to talk about something and then it goes a whole nother direction because that individual doesn't have the thing that you need in that season because you begin to choosing wrong people to talk to and to listen to. So this man sitting at the pool Bethesda for 38 years around other sick and lame people, you can make the argument that it matters who is filling up your life, especially in desert seasons. Here's another thing that takes place in our desert season. As we begin to actually identify with the thing, with the pain, with the divorce, with the sin, with the failure, I am those things. You begin to identify with, I am this sickness. I am this sin. I am this failure. And now you put it all on you. So what is our response? This is what it says in Romans 12 too. It's gonna be on the screen. I love this verse. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You guys can keep that up for just a minute. I love this verse so much because it talks about how we talk to our self. In desert seasons, we have a lot of self-talk, don't we? We have a lot of thoughts that are constantly moving. There's this uh, uh, neuroscientist named Dr. Caroline Leaf who talks about the mind that your mind doesn't show. Every three seconds you're having thoughts. That's overwhelming. And she talks about this thing in her brand new book. I love what she says. She says, we don't need to be held captive to our thoughts. Instead, we can capture our thoughts. So, this idea, I think about like a net, like if you're like someone's trying to catch you, like your thoughts try to catch you every day. Have you noticed that? And it catches you kind of in a net. And then you begin to kind of go down this long cycle of believing those certain things. Instead, as she studies how the brain operates, and she's a Christian person as well, so she kind of has this like really cool way of looking at it, where you can actually capture your thoughts and then name those thoughts and then make it obedient to what this word says. Right? And I love this word that Paul is saying to the church in Rome. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this word transform, right, in the Greek is this idea of rebuild or change or even a really, really cool word. I love this word, ready? Metamorphosis. Can everyone say metamorphosis with me? Metamorphosis. Like, this is something you learn, like, in, like, junior high science. Like, this idea that something starts as one thing and then it changes into something else. And this is actually what the writer is saying. It, it actually goes through this metamorphosis period. It transforms. How? By renewing our mind, by having different thoughts, by taking those thoughts and making it captive and letting it go on under what the word of God says and who Jesus says that I am. I love what Sharman said last week, that I am who he says that I am, right? This word transformation or this word metamorphosis it reminds me, Last year, uh, my boys were outside playing in the yard, and uh, they, they, they caught a, a caterpillar. And, you know, I go outside, and I see him, and this caterpillar's crawling over their, his arm, and it's, like, on their legs, and I'm like, that's disgusting. not a big bug guy, okay? I'm thinking, like, guys, really cool. Let the caterpillar go. Let's go take a shower. This is gross, right? Let's wash up. But they had this, like, caterpillar craw- crawling all their arm, and then they're like, we need to keep it. That's not going to work for me. I'm not going to have a caterpillar running free in the house. Like, what if it crawls on my face when I'm sleeping? Like, I don't need that to happen. And then I kind of have this moment. I'm like, I got to be a good dad. You know, dad moment. Got to get excited about this one. So I I go inside, and I get like a mason jar, and I get some twigs and some leaves and some dirt. I put it all in this mason jar, and I get the top, and I poke a bunch of holes. That's what they teach you in science class in junior high, like make sure it can breathe. And I say, hey, put the caterpillar in here. And then they name the caterpillar. Once you name something, it's over. So the caterpillar's name is Pilly. Super creative. I know. They're here today. Creative boys. Love it. Pilly is going to go in this mason jar, and I take it, I put the top on, all the holes are poked, I put it like on our windowsill in our kitchen, and after like two or three days, Pilly's just kind of like roaming around. His environment is much smaller than it was a day ago, right? And then like, I kind of get excited in my head. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I know what caterpillars turn into, right? They're going to turn into a butterfly or a moth. They're going to go through this like stage. They're going to create like this little cocoon type thing with the silk that's somehow in their body. I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing. And then like a week later, I begin to see it form. And now I'm like invested. I'm all excited. I'm like, boys, check it out. Pilly is making a home. Pilly's got the little cocoon thing going. And they're all excited. And then like a week goes by. Like two weeks go by, three weeks go by, I'm like, okay, I have a bad feeling. Pilly's probably dead. But I can't tell the boys that Pilly's dead. We gotta hope, we gotta pray that Pilly's gonna come out flapping some wings. But y'all, I gotta tell you honestly, Billy's gone. Like, I just believe, I'm like, there's no way this thing is surviving this cocoon. Like, it's in a tiny mason jar, it's by a window, maybe it got too much sunlight, maybe it's just fried, maybe it's gone, maybe it's dead. And then, like, a little, a couple days after that, when I have these feelings, I come into the kitchen, the boys are upstairs, and wouldn't you know it, Billy's flapping those wings in this mason jar, and I'm like, boys, come downstairs, Billy's flying! And we had this moth in a mason jar flapping his wings. And then I'm like, guys, we gotta bring it outside. It can't live in the mason jar when it's flying. That's not gonna be good. We gotta let it out. So we go out in the backyard and eventually Pilly doesn't really fly away. He kind of falls and then eventually flies away. Like, you know, he's just getting his his wings right. And it made me think about this idea of transforming our mind and going through this metamorphosis in our life that I had an idea. I actually thought maybe this thing isn't working. Maybe the cocoon thing didn't actually uh, work in the way that Pilly needed it to work. You know, uh, maybe it was dead. And I think for us, it's like when we're going through transformational seasons, it seems like it's just taking way too long. These desert seasons, it just seems like this has been a long time. I'm not seeing a whole lot. This metamorphosis in my heart and in my mind, it doesn't feel like it's actually working. And I think in the same way when I think about this story and I think about this verse, I think about our lives and where Jesus comes to this man at the pool of Bethesda and he says, Do you want to get well? And he says, I can't. And he just says, Get up, take your mat, and walk. Later in the story, Jesus comes across this man and he says, Hey, it looks like you're doing well. And he says, Go on and sin no more. Do not return to the pool Bethesda again. Do not put your hope in Asclepius or any other idol God. Do not go back to that thing that so encaptured in, in, in you. Don't go back to that thing. Walk this thing out every single day. There's a transformation that takes place as we walk with Jesus, amen? You might be saying, hey, that sounds really good but I feel like in my life, I'm at at the pool. I'm at at this pool of of Bethesda, I'm at this pool filled with shame and hurt and guilt and condemnation and I'm in pain. And maybe it's not been 38 years for you, maybe it has. Maybe it's been 38 months, maybe it's been 38 days or 38 seconds. The truth is, Jesus comes to this place And he visits this man. And it makes me think if we're sitting at the pool even today, and my encouragement would be this, is to have the courage to name the thing that keeps you at the pool. Have the courage to name it. Have the courage to speak it out loud. Have the courage to write it down. Have the courage to have the conversation. This thing keeps me here, and I don't know how to get up. I've encountered God, I I believe that he loves me, but I haven't actually gotten up yet. And then walk this thing out. Have the courage to begin to ask yourself, what am I filling myself up with and is it good? Is it helping or is it destructive? Then ask yourself, who is in my circle? Who am I allowing to speak into my life? Is it good? Or is it destructive? If I have found myself sitting at the pool Bethesda for 38 years or 38 seconds, what is it that keeps me at the pool? Now, the thing is about the pool Bethesda, this was an incredibly disgraceful place. In that culture and in that time, we, we, we read it already in John chapter five, right? There are hundreds of sick, paralyzed, lame, blind people just lying by this pool, there's five colonnades at us. so they're trying to get the shade from the sun, but they've been lying there for years. This place is known as a disgraceful place. And yet, Jesus goes there. And yet, Jesus enters into the most disgraceful place known to Rome. And, and this is what I love in John chapter 5, verse 6. Look what it says. When Jesus saw the man lying there and learned how long he's been in his condition, he says, do you want to get well? He saw the man. Friend, I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I'm telling you, if you've been sitting at the pool waiting, Jesus sees you. He sees you. He sees you in the hopelessness. He sees you in your desert season. He sees you in your pain, in your hurt, and in your brokenness, and Jesus sees you you so what if what if we allow Jesus to enter in to the most disgraceful places in our soul what if we actually allow Jesus to enter in, into our disgrace what if we actually began to lay down our shame our pain our hurts and said Jesus it's your way it's way better than mine. This thing hasn't been working. I've been sitting. I've been waiting. I've been wanting. But for 38 years, it hasn't really worked for this guy, has it? Until Jesus comes and says, I'm the one that brings hope. I'm the one that brings healing in the desert seasons of your life. So what if we allow Jesus to enter into the most disgraceful places of our heart? I believe God will begin to heal those places, heal those areas. Will it happen immediately? For this man, he could walk immediately, and yet he had to walk it out every single day. Let me close with a story and then we're gonna sing here in a minute. At the end of the book of John, the gospel according to John, we find uh, all the disciples are gathered around this table and they're having the Last Supper, this famous Last Supper moment. And Jesus is teaching them and talking to them and then Peter has this moment with Jesus and eventually Jesus basically just tells Peter like, hey, you're going to deny me. You're gonna deny me three times, you're gonna deny me. Peter's like, no, 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 there's no way, there's no way, this is not happening. And he's like, well, you are, you're going to deny me me three times. then fast forward, Jesus is eventually taken into custody, and he's about to be beaten and bruised and hung on a cross for our sins. Yet Peter finds himself fleeing the scene. And then in John 18, 18, it says this, that Peter, you can put this on the screen, it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now he's in this courtyard. Peter is, and keep this up. Peter's sitting there around this fire. He just denied Jesus, and this is the beginning of his consistent denial. And someone says, Hey, you look like you're one of his disciples. And Peter's like, No, that's not me. No, no, no I think you are. No, 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 that's not me. And then eventually the rooster crows, and Peter feels all this shame, and Peter runs for his life. Denies Jesus at this fire. Fast forward after Jesus was crucified, then he raised from the dead, then he visited some of his disciples, and then Peter, 21, 9, is on a boat fishing, and he sees Jesus on the shore, and Jesus calls to him, and eventually Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore, and Jesus is there. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. friends, Peter denies Jesus at this fire. And then once they get to the shore, Jesus has a fire already made. You can look deep into this story where there's a correlation. There's this beautiful contrast where Jesus is reminding Peter, not of him denying, not of his guilt. Instead, he has a fire prepared and ready because he knows where Peter denied him. But now this is where he's going to restore him. So instead of thinking of the fire as somewhere where my guilt and my shame overwhelms me, it's actually a place where Jesus says, no, 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 no. This will now be a place of restoration and healing and grace. This is where I restore you. And this is what we see at the Pool of Bethesda, the beautiful part about the idea of Bethesda, this word, Bethesda meaning house of mercy or house of grace, it also can mean house of shame. So in the midst, in the middle of our shame, Jesus says, no, 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 no. I have grace for you. I have healing for you. I have a purpose for you. So we have to begin to ask ourselves, what am I filling myself up with? If I've been sitting at the pool waiting and waiting and waiting, and the Asclepian way, as this guy would have known, is actually I have to do the work to get in the pool. Notice his, his two excuses. I can't get in, and I have no one to get me in. And this is what religion will teach you and me that you have to do something. And all Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You don't need to go in the pool. Just get up, just walk it out. I'm your provider. I'm the one that brings healing. I'm the one that brings grace. We're gonna sing this song in just a moment called Good, Good Father. I love it because it's such a declaration that he's just good. I have all my mistakes, I have all my failures, I have all my stuff, but can I just actually lay it down and say, hey God, you're just good. Thank you for just visiting my pool, thanks for coming to my hurt, thanks for coming to my pain, and reminding me today that in my desert season of life, you're the provider, you're the healer, you're the one that brings life into my bones. So Heartland, why not you stand with me. I'm gonna pray for you. We're gonna sing out this song. And perhaps even this week, we begin to ask ourselves, what area, what area do I need to allow Jesus to come into my life? What area do I need to invite him in to begin to wash out the things that keep me in my hurt and in my pain? Let me pray for you, and then we'll sing this out together. God, thank you so much for a reminder today that you are good. God, you are good. God, many times in our lives, and especially in our desert seasons of our lives, God, we don't really have it all together. We're, we're trying, we're trying to make sense of everything. And the truth is, we can't. I've been sitting at this pool, just waiting and waiting and waiting. Jesus, would you begin to visit Our hearts today begin to remind us again and again who we are. God, I pray, God, as we begin to reflect, God, we begin to wait on you. And God, I believe even today you're saying, Get up, get up and walk. God, we love you today. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. It's in Jesus' name. You've been listening to Online Campus Pastor Trevor McDonald with Part 3 of the series titled Desert Sessions. Thanks for listening.